Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me as we dip into a deeper investigation within our heiress tour with the Von Bulow affair. It was the Von Bulow affair that rocked high society and the rest of the United States in the 1980s. It is a story filled with money, sex, scandal, and drugs. The details are fairly sordid when you really get into it. Between the movie, Reversal of Fortune, starring Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close, respectively, as Klaus Von Bülow and Sonny Von Bülow, this story is fairly ubiquitous in our common culture, at least within the true crime community. We might all be familiar with the main through lines of this case. Klaus von Bülow is tried twice in the 1980s for the attempted murders of his heiress wife, Sonny von Bülow. In that first trial, Klaus is found guilty. In the second trial, he is acquitted. But there is so, so much more to the saga. We might know the general through lines, but do we know the through lines as our man Dominic Dunn reports it? Again in 1985, during the second trial, Dunn is just starting his reporting career investigating crime real time. Our man Nick is learning how to do that at this trial. And the thing is, he knows all the things about high society that none of the other press corps knows about or really even cares about. Dominic Dunn might not know what a lead is in a story, but he sure knows all about Klaus von Bülow's particular shirt cuffs. Dominic Dunn is arriving in 1985 at the second trial of von Bülow, figuring it all out, no matter his own insecurities. Dunn wants to get into the real story in his quest for justice. Before we begin today's investigation, I do have a spyglass here with some names of the latest incredible folks to lend some support over at patreon.com slash doneanddone, where you get early and ad-free episodes and weekly not-done-yet bonuses too. A huge welcome and tremendous thanks to Donna P., Diane T., Ellen D., Sarah S., and Ryan. Holy cats, y'all are the best. Thank you, thank you so much for your support. Friends, these next few episodes are going to break this story down as Dominic Dunn told it with some past and recent assists from some other terrific sources. Remember, all sources and recommended reading can be found at doneanddone.com. Today we are going to begin at the beginning, meeting our two main players in this drama, Sonny and Klaus. What were their lives like before they got together? This episode will introduce Sonny and Klaus and reveal the history of both of them before and up to their marriage in 1966. Let's investigate. As we learned in last week's lead-in episode to this week, 
Dominic Dunn does know so many of the folks that he will cover in his reporting. Our man Nick did attend Sonny's debutante party. Sonny was a fresh and beautiful 18 years old. This party was given at Tamerlane, the Greenwich, Connecticut home of Sonny's mother in 1950. Dominic Dunn would have been about 24 at the time. And the thing that I want you to know from the beginning of this arc is that Dominic Dunn has enormous sympathy for Sonny. All through his reporting of the story, it might be because of that long ago connection. Many folks covering this case at the same time as Dominic don't have a lot of sympathy for Sonny. This is not the case with Dominic Dunn. In much of the coverage of this case, Sonny is remembered as the victim. She remains in a coma for almost 28 years. Here at the beginning of this tale on Done and Done, I want to focus on Sonny's history and bring her very much to life as a beautiful and vibrant person with so much happiness and a whole life before those two terrible Christmases in 1979 and 1980 at Clarendon Court, her Newport, Rhode Island home. Sonny, whose given name is Martha, Martha Sharp Crawford, was born September the 1st, 1932. Martha is a Virgo girl. She has a few nicknames in her life. Choo Choo <laughs> is her first nickname. The name Sunny comes a little bit later because of her naturally sunny disposition. But how do we get this first nickname, Choo Choo? Martha's father is a utilities steel magnate, and she is born on his private railway carriage. Choo Choo, and then Sunny, as she will quickly be known. Her father is George Washington Crawford. He was born in 1861. George Washington Crawford is a self-made man. He founds the Columbia Gas and Electric Company. A lot of money, a lot of power. George Washington Crawford is 72 years old when his only child, Sonny, is born. Who is Sonny's mom, you might be asking? Annie Laurie Warmack is her name, and she is heiress to her own fortune, as Annie Laurie's father is the founder of the International Shoe Corporation. Annie Laurie is George's second wife and a whopping 39 years younger than her husband. A few things you want to know here. Annie Laurie is the second wife of Sonny's father, who passes away when Sonny is just three years old leaving Sonny and her young mom to inherit a lot of dollars. For Sonny herself, this is a fortune conservatively estimated at about $75 million, at the top end about $100 million. That $100 million then converted to today's dollars, $2.3 billion. That is so much money for a little girl. Sunny, growing up, loves her mother, and she loves her grandmother, and she loves her nanny. And Sunny's life is spent flitting between their apartment at 990 Fifth Avenue in New York City. This is where the family winters. 
and Tamerlane in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is where the three summer each year. Both places are high-dollar, high-society digs. Both are Annie Laurie's property. And the family, these three ladies, Sonny, her mom, and her grandmother, are super close. And Sonny's mom and grandmother adore Sonny. Sonny is golden in their estimation, says author William Wright about the ladies. The two older women had strong personalities, as well as brains, looks, and vast wealth. They lavished attention on her, Sonny, exacting the same flawless deportment that a court chamberlain would demand from an heir apparent. Sonny will attend the exclusive and prestigious girls' school, the Chapin School, where chauffeured Rolls-Royce takes Sonny every day. Sonny is pretty. She's a lovely girl. She's described in a lot of ways, but from this time, as beautiful as Sonny is, a lot of her friends remember her being very shy. The shyness is the thing that they remember about her, but Sonny is utterly pleasing. As she grows up, she becomes gorgeous. She's a knockout. Some say she looks a little like Grace Kelly. The one thing Sonny is always described with and by. People talk about her ethereal quality. When Sonny was 18, her debutante party was held at Tamerlane. And here Sonny begins life on the social scene. She will graduate from Chapin, but college is not really Sonny's thing, although she will take the college boards and receive high marks. Sonny could have gone on to college, as Sonny likes to point out to her mother, Annie Laurie, but hey, why not live the life of a socialite? After graduation, it's going to be a life of travel for Sonny, like you do in high society, that comes in the 1950s. Annie Laurie is going to take her daughter on a little European adventure. A few things to know. Annie Laurie is about to be married again to a man named Russell Aitken. Russ Aitken is quite a Renaissance man. He's wealthy, sure. He's a talented painter and sculptor as well. His art collection is simply incredible. Russell and Annie Laurie, they're really two peas in a pod. They are going to get married, have a very happy marriage going into the future. Russell Aitken, Sonny's almost new stepfather, is here for this trip. Another thing that's good to know is that Annie Laurie is a heck of a shooter. She likes to game hunt. So it is Annie Laurie, Sonny, and Russell Aitken who will be headed off to the Austrian Alps for a little vacation. The location of Sonny's first romance is Schloss Mittersell. Schloss, the German word for castle. Schloss Mittersell, this place was built in 1400 as a summer palace for the bishops of Salzburg. Because why not? Through the centuries, though, and getting us here into more current day, before World War II, it is the lover of Coco Chanel. His name is Baron Hubert von Pants, who converts Schloss Mittersell into this place. It's a fabulous summer getaway 
for the very wealthy and or very royal with all the best amenities. Schloss Mittersell was the place to be. It's all happening here until World War II, when this home, (laughs) castle, will become the private getaway of Heinrich Himmler. Now, after World War II, the home is in a little bit better shape construction-wise. The Germans, to be fair, made some improvements to the castle built in 1400. And after the war, Baron von Pants is being persuaded to reopen his Schloss Mittersell as the luxury playground for the wealthy and the royals. This is post-war. Things shift a little bit here, though. This next bit is from crimelibrary.org. Author Mark Gribben, he explains this special place, its mystique, and Sonny's one special summer of 1956. From Mark Gribben, Times had changed in Europe, and nobles with titles and no money were far more common than their rich counterparts, making it difficult for pants to find paying guests among his European friends. Fortunately, the war had been good to the Americans, and soon nouveau riche from America were flocking to the castle to rub elbows with the poor but titled Europeans. In the first years following the war, brewer Anheuser-Busch, publisher William Randolph Hearst, and entertainers Bob Hope and Bing Crosby signed the guest register, along with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and less well-to-do princes, barons, dukes, and other bluebloods. Pants had stumbled upon a unique symbiotic relationship. Rich Americans, awed by titles, and destitute nobles in search of wealth, mingled at the resort, each seeking what the other had to offer. Pants, quote, tired of feeding and housing these healthy young men, put the poor nobles to work around the club as shooting guides and sports instructors, Wright wrote. When the Von Pantses could say to a guest, this is your tennis instructor, Prince Kumar of Barada, it had an electrifying effect on the wary mothers of heiresses who normally regarded a sleek young tennis pro as enemy number one, unquote. One such man was Prince Alfie von Ausberg, a 19-year-old blonde Adonis known as a top sportsman and lady killer. Alfie, a German, had little except his title, for his family estates were on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. But he was fortunate to have relatives who still retained vast wealth, and they gave him an allowance that enabled him to summer at Mittersell. It was during a dance at Mittersell on her first day at the resort that Sonny Crawford met Prince Alfie, and the two fell in love immediately. Sonny's mother was opposed to the marriage. He was four years younger than Sonny, Annie Laurie pointed out. That didn't matter, Sonny replied. Marrying him would mean living close to the communists, the mother argued. Where they lived didn't matter as long as they were together, Sonny shot back. American men are better suited to marrying American women, Annie said. 
he will be unfaithful. Worst of all, she cried, he's Catholic. Tis no matter, Sonny is in love. Sonny Crawford marries her prince at Tamerlane in the summer of 1957, becoming a real princess in the meantime. All should be delightful, but maybe even from the beginning, we should have seen some complications. Sonny wants to take her nanny on her honeymoon. Prince Alfie says no. Sonny and Alfie will remain married for 12 years, but ultimately it turns out that Annie Laurie may have been right. These two, Sonny and Alfie, are not necessarily suited to each other. Prince Alfie is a cheater, a prolific one, and is not a man who likes to be controlled. Sonny, who has been fairly well controlled all her life, is now living overseas in Europe and misses her home and her friends. Sonny does have two children in this marriage, Annie Laurie, named after her mother but goes by Allah, and Alexander. Both kids, a princess and a prince too. Allah is born in 1958, Alexander's born in 1959. By the mid-1960s, Sonny and Alfie know that this marriage is not working and the two will separate. There's no acrimony, really. They remain friendly, just not wanting to be married to each other. The divorce between the two will become final in 1965, but by this time, Sonny already has a new man on the scene, her soon-to-be husband number two, Klaus von Bülow. Before we move along to his story, let's fit in a quick break here, back in just a moment. Oh, let's get to the other key player in this story, Klaus von Bülow. Who is he? He honestly has received so much of the attention in this debacle, but I hope in this next segment I have a few surprises in store for you. want to go back to last week and remember the very beginning of that Vanity Fair piece that Dominic Dunn writes about this case, Fatal Charm. Dominic Dunn opens it this way. The problem with Klaus, said one of Klaus von Bülow's closest friends at a Park Avenue dinner party, is that he does not dwell in the Palace of Truth. You see, he's a fake. He has always been a fake. His name is a fake. His life is a fake. He has created a character that he plays. Klaus is trompe You also might hear this as trompe-loi. Trompe-loi, trompe Spelling, if anybody wants to type this out, T-R-O-M-P-L-apostrophe-O-E-I-L. Let's talk about this term for a moment. Trompele is a French term literally translating to deceive the eye. Trompele, you'll normally hear in regard to art. What trompele is, it's an optical illusion where... The three dimensions in space and objects and art occur in a two-dimensional space. Trompele deceives the eye. Remember that. Continuing on in our introduction of Klaus, there is no better way to introduce him than Dominic Dunn's introduction from Fatal Charm. 
Dominic Dunn will give a pretty epic breakdown introducing Klaus von Bülow. We are going to take our man Nick's work here with a few rabbit holes in between. As so much is happening in this intro, it really does need a little bit of unpacking. Let us begin with Dunn writing. Who exactly is Klaus von Bülow? For most of his life, dark rumors have circulated about him. That he was a page boy at Hermann Goring's wedding. That he is a necrophile. That he killed his mother and kept her body on ice. That he was involved in international espionage. Von Bülow either has a logical explanation for each rumor or shrugs it off as ludicrous. The necrophilia story, he says, was pinned on him in 1949 as a joke on Capri by Fiat owner Gianni Agnelli and Prince Dotto Raspuli. Like dirt, it stuck, he says. He was born Klaus Cecil Borberg on August 11, 1926 in Copenhagen to Jana and Svend Borberg, who divorced when he was four. His mother was a beauty who throughout her life developed strong friendships with men in high places. His father was a drama critic who greatly admired the Germans, even after they occupied Denmark in World War II. Says von Bülow about his father, he gave a good name to a bad cause. He dined with the wrong people. After the war, he was arrested as a collaborator and sentenced to four years in prison. Von Bülow says that his father's conviction, like his own 36 years later, was thrown out on appeal and he was released after 18 months. However, when Von Bülow returned to Denmark, he did not go see his father, who died broken and ostracized a year after his release. His mother was residing in England at the time of the German invasion of Denmark. Klaus was spirited there via Sweden in the early years of the war through the efforts of both his parents. Klaus took the name of his maternal grandfather, Fritz Bülow, a former minister of justice, since the name Borberg had been besmirched. The Vaughn was added later. Our first side journey here. It is in between the wars that Klaus von Bülow is educated in Swiss schools in San Moritz. Klaus is a Danish kid, and in San Moritz, very much looked down upon by the wealthier, not Danish boys. But Klaus, he's looking up. He's looking up at the wealth he wants, the privilege to. Klaus sees class and really begins craving it here. To be fair, Klaus is super smart. He's super smooth. He impresses his upper-class peers. He's got some kind of charm. Again, Trompelet deceives the eye. When World War II breaks out, this is such an interesting bit to me, Klaus is hastily gotten out of the country through his parents' intervention. This happens in the belly of a British mosquito bomber. Klaus stays in safety through the war, but I do want to interject one thing here in a very odd way with how spiderwebs come around. Alexandra Moltke Isles, 
the mistress of Klaus von Bülow, many, many years in our future, not wanting to be interviewed personally by our man Nick after the second trial, but Alexandra does write this intriguing bit to Dominic. We all have our own ways of surviving. Mine is to try to put it out of my head and get on with other things. I know you will understand that an interview somehow keeps it all unfinished business, but here is a bit of irony you're welcome to use. It was my father who, in the Danish underground, got little Klaus Borberg in his Boy Scout uniform out of Denmark. Alexandra and her father we will be hearing more about, but that is quite a long-ago connection that will come back in our future. Dunn continues writing in his introduction of Klaus von Bülow. When he was 16, he was accepted at Cambridge University, from which he graduated in 1946 with a law degree. Too young to take the bar, he spent a year in Paris auditing courses at L'École de Science Politique and introducing himself to the world of international high society. After working with Hambrose Bank in London, he joined the law offices of Quinton Hogg, later Lord Hailsham. An interesting fact that was not brought up in either trial is that during the 1950s, his law firm handled the first known case of murder by insulin injection. What? Stop the bus! This, to me, may be the most fascinating thing about this whole case. Klaus von Bülow, in the 1950s, works for the law firm to represent the very first trial of murder by insulin. Klaus von Bülow has a blueprint for his actions 25 years later. There is a fascinating breakdown of this 1957 case published in the National Library of Medicine. This is authored by Vincent Marks and Caroline Richmond. Again, all sources can be found on doneanddone.com. The entire piece can be linked to. I am going to take a few excerpts from it that I think you'll know why I've chosen by the time we get to the end. Again, from the National Library of Medicine, this is called Kenneth Barlow, the first documented case of murder by insulin. On the morning of 4 May 1957, just after 2 a.m., Dr. David Price, a forensic pathologist, was called to the home of Elizabeth and Kenneth Barlow in a residential suburb of Bradford, Yorkshire. The story was that Kenneth Barlow had discovered his wife unconscious in the bath at about 11.20 p.m. the previous night and called his own doctor, who diagnosed her as dead. Kenneth, a 38-year-old state-registered nurse, was unemployed. He had married Elizabeth 11 months earlier and was, to all outward appearances, living happily with her and his 10-year-old son by his first wife. According to Kenneth, Elizabeth had had tea at about 5 p.m. on the day of her death. Shortly afterwards, she announced that she was tired and went to bed. When Kenneth came to bed at about 9.30 p.m., he found that Elizabeth had vomited on the bed. Together, they changed the sheets. 
She put on some pajamas but took them off because she said she felt too warm and decided to take a bath. Kenneth lay on the bed and went to sleep at about 9.45 p.m. to the sound of the bath running. When he woke up at around 11.20 p.m., Elizabeth had not returned to bed. When he went into the bathroom, he found her submerged beneath the water. He tried to lift her out but did not have the strength to do so. Nevertheless, he held her above the water until all the water had run out of the tub. He said he then tried artificial respiration by pressing on her abdomen as he was unable to lift her from the bath. Only after this was unsuccessful did he run next door to his neighbors who had a telephone and ask them to call a doctor. The family doctor arrived ten minutes later and found Elizabeth in the empty bath in a position simulating natural sleep. He did not touch her beyond ascertaining that she was dead. With such an unexpected death, he felt it necessary to call the police, who in turn called Dr. Price, who was on call as home office forensic pathologist. His main job was as a consultant pathologist at the nearby Beckett Hospital in Barnsley. Dr. Price suspected from the beginning that this was not a natural death for two reasons. First, death from drowning in a domestic bath in a previously healthy 32-year-old woman is rare. Second, but even more telling, was the 110 milliliters, a small cupful, of water that remained in the cavity where the crook of Elizabeth's arm abutted the side of the bath. This made Kenneth's story that he had tried to resuscitate her difficult to accept, and consequently, his account of the events suspicious. Meanwhile, the police had made a thorough search of the house and uncovered nothing very much except two vomit-stained pillowcases in the bathroom wash basin, a set of sweat-drenched pajamas in the bedroom, and a couple of used syringes in the kitchen. Because of the latter, the police searched the house for vials of insulin or other injectable medications, but found none. Dr. Price began a post-mortem examination in the local mortuary at 5.45 a.m., only three and a half hours after he first saw Elizabeth's body and six hours after she had died. He noted that her pupils were widely dilated and that there was blood-stained froth in her nose, mouth, and throat. Samples of her lungs, when examined under the microscope, were bulky, congested, and wet. They also revealed fluid retention and small hemorrhages, confirming the initial diagnosis of death by drowning. Apart from this, he found no abnormalities, but did observe that Elizabeth was eight weeks pregnant. In addition, Dr. Price took the precaution of collecting blood from a number of different sites in the body as well as some urine from the bladder to send to the poisons laboratory, just in case she had been poisoned. The samples were examined by Dr. Alan Curry of the Northeastern Forensic Science Laboratory, who went on to become one of the most distinguished directors of the UK's nationwide forensic science service. 
Dr. Curry found none of the common poisons or abortion-causing substances in any of the samples he examined. Nevertheless, Dr. Price and his senior police colleagues remained convinced that Elizabeth had been rendered unconscious before she drowned, and they considered the possibility that she had been injected with insulin. This would later explain her excessive sweating and dilated pupils before death. Four days later, on 8 May, the decision was made to re-examine Elizabeth's body more thoroughly and under bright light. On this occasion, with the benefit of a magnifying glass, two hypodermic injection sites were identified in each buttock. Dr. Price removed these with their surrounding tissues and stored them in a refrigerator until he could find a scientist with the expertise and facilities to undertake an insulin test. The methods available at the time were comparatively crude by today's standards and could only be performed by a handful of specialist laboratories. They relied on finding the dose that caused hypoglycemic convulsions in mice and comparing the sample with standardized samples containing known amounts of insulin. It was the method used at that time to measure the strength of pharmaceutical insulin extracted from animal pancreases before releasing it for use by patients. Dr. M. R. Gerd of the research laboratories of the Boots Drug Company, which was one of the three British manufacturers of insulin at the time, undertook to perform the test. Dr. Gerd did not, however, hold out much hope of success. He thought the technique might not be sensitive enough to detect the small amount of insulin that would be found in the tissues of someone who had received an insulin injection. However, Dr. Gerd did find easily measurable quantities of insulin in extracts of the tissues taken from Elizabeth's buttocks. For comparison, Dr. Price had removed tissues from other corpses, which Dr. Gerd treated in the same way. As he expected, he found no trace of insulin in them. The findings from Elizabeth were thus clearly abnormal and therefore highly suspicious. On 5 July, two months after Elizabeth's death, Dr. Gerd reported that he had been able to recover from three separate samples of Elizabeth's buttocks a total of about 84 units of insulin, enough to keep two insulin-dependent diabetic patients going for a whole day. Elizabeth did not have diabetes, nor had she been prescribed insulin. Just a note here, insulin conversions in today's numbers are very, very different. We're looking at 1957 here, but the thing I want you to know is 84 units of insulin is a whole lot of insulin. There's no reason anyone should be around 84 units of insulin in 1957 or in today's units unless you are a type 1 diabetic. Back to the reporting of this piece. On the basis of this evidence, right? Elizabeth doesn't have diabetes. She's never been prescribed insulin. Kenneth Barlow was confronted by the police on 26 July 
whereupon he admitted injecting Elizabeth, but not with insulin. He said he had, with her permission and collaboration, injected her with ergometrine, a drug used legitimately in obstetrics, at the conclusion of a delivery and by laypeople when they could get a hold of it to try to induce an abortion and which was clearly illegal. He was unaware that this possibility had already been considered and ruled out by the toxicological examination conducted by Dr. Curry on Elizabeth's body immediately after her death and subsequently by examination of the needles and syringes found in the kitchen. Between the time that Kenneth Barlow was charged with murdering Elizabeth and his case coming to court, a new, much more sensitive and precise method for measuring insulin and bodily fluids had become available. I find a lot of that fascinating, but the next bit in the source story is the way the scientists verified with this new, improved method. I don't want to get too bogged down in that. Let's go to the findings of what happens now that we can get specific about testing. Continuing from the piece, with Dr. Gerd's results, to go on, there seems so little doubt that Elizabeth had been injected with insulin that the prosecution proceeded to trial even before Dr. Wright's results became available. The prosecution recognized that some people deliberately inject themselves with insulin for a variety of reasons, including suicide, but as it is difficult for anyone to inject themselves in their buttocks, it was obvious to them that someone else had done it and that that person was Kenneth. Before the trial, it emerged that earlier in the year, Kenneth had told a fellow employee at the hospital where he was working about an accident his wife had suffered the previous September. On that occasion, he claimed, he had found her collapsed in a hot bath and rescued her by removing her from it. He had also, it transpired, boasted to fellow workers over a period of two years that it would be easy to kill someone with insulin since it was undetectable in the body after death. There appeared to be no motive for killing his wife, apart from the rather tenuous one that he did not want her to have a child. Kenneth vehemently denied the charge of murder, but at his trial at Leeds Assizes in December 1957, he could not explain the insulin found in Elizabeth's body, apart from suggesting that she had administered it herself. The absence of insulin vials and of any insulin in the two syringes that had been found, together with the improbability of self-administration into the sites where the insulin was found, all militated against this possibility. The jury found Kenneth Barlow guilty on the evidence and Mr. Justice Diplock sentenced him to life imprisonment on 13 December 1957. He was released from prison 26 years later in 1984, still maintaining his innocence. Although usually described as the first case of murder by insulin to lead to conviction, Elizabeth Barlow did not in fact die from an insulin overdose, although it played a crucial role in her death. The amount injected into her was sufficient to render her unconscious, and whether she would or would not have died had Kenneth left her long enough will never be known. 
it is probable that he had expected her to die more quickly than she did, and so he made the decision to drown her, which he did. Had he left her in her bed, she might have well been dead in the morning, or at least have suffered irreversible brain damage, and all of the insulin he had injected would have been absorbed into her bloodstream and destroyed. There would have been no smoking gun for the pathologists and toxicologists to find, and there would have been no case against him. This is how Klaus von Bülow spends his 1957 defending that guy. Sure, he's not the one arguing the defense, but Klaus von Bülow is no dummy when it comes to legal stuff and laws and how to skate around them. I want to repeat these last lines one more time as I think this will come into play in both 1979 and 1980. Had he left her in her bed, she might have well been dead in the morning or at least have suffered irreversible brain damage and all of the insulin he injected would have been absorbed into her bloodstream and destroyed. There would have been no smoking gun for the pathologist and the toxicologist to find, and there would have been no case against him. It's a little chilling, isn't it? Before we continue through the rest of Dominic Dunn's introduction of Klaus, now's another good time to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute. Dominic Dunn will continue writing in Vanity Fair. From Fatal Charm, his introduction of Klaus von Bülow. Continuing along. Von Bülow and his mother, with whom he lived until her death, bought one of the grandest apartments in London, in Belgrave Square, which Von Bülow says, dined two hundred with ease and slept three with difficulty. Before gambling became legal, he rented it out to his friend, John Aspinall, for private gambling parties. He also made friends with Lord Lucan, who later murdered his children's nanny in the mistaken belief that it was his wife and whose subsequent whereabouts have never been ascertained. What? Back up the bus. John Aspinall, we know from his exclusive gambling club, and Lord Lucan and Klaus von Bülow, friends? Klaus von Bülow rents his home to John Aspinall, Go back to episode 72 to 76 here on the main feed for the tale of Lord Lucan and that whole story. But there's so much more to Klaus. He's involved in so many things. Dominic Dunn continues writing. Tall and handsome, with an eye for the right social contacts, Von Bülow soon knew all the people who mattered. In San Moritz, he had an affair with socialite Anne Woodward after she killed her husband. Holy cats, I just can't. Gonna back up the bus again. Klaus von Bülow has an affair with Anne Woodward after she shot her husband, Billy. This case was the focus of our episodes 28, 29, and 30. Again, reinforcing the two Mrs. Grenvilles thing we've had happening along with Truman Capote here. So many spiderwebs. Between the main feed and the bonuses on Patreon, we are in advanced stuff here, but this one is too delicious not to share the whole story. Setting Klaus von Bülow in 1956, where he has an affair with Anne Woodward. In San Moritz, 
And this night, Klaus is there for the night that the whole acrimony develops between Truman Capote and Anne Woodward, all in the same night. There is an excellent book by Roseanne Montillo called Deliberate Cruelty, Truman Capote, The Millionaire's Wife, and The Murder of the Century. From Roseanne Montillo, she describes how this whole scene went down in Deliberate Cruelty. Everything really, really does connect around here. From Deliberate Cruelty, Anne Woodward had resolved to live a quiet life in Europe where she could mourn her late husband, Billy Woodward, far from the maddening crowd of the American press. The town of San Moritz, high in the Swiss Alps, was certainly an unusual place to retreat to. Renowned for its winter sports, popular as a spa hamlet, and exclusive as a community where entertainers, celebrities, and other assorted socialites gathered, San Moritz was a lesser European sun around which various society moons revolved. While summer tourism was popular, it was in the winter that this small city shined. Luminaries descended in head-to-toe furs in the daytime and flashy jewels at night, their diamonds and bangles competing with the glittering snow. In the fall of 1956, Anne Woodward was once again the center of attention as she sat down for dinner at one of Europe's most elite restaurants. Back in the United States, those familiar with Anne Woodward, and lately there were few who had not heard of her, whether over lunch at the Colony on New York's Upper East Side or on the front pages of the tabloids, believed that she had been banished to Europe by her formidable mother-in-law, Elsie Woodward, and was now likely leading a lonely life without family or friends, much less a lover, with plenty of time to reflect on the transgressions that had forced her into exile. Oh, friends, it's just too good. But as Truman Capote watched her from a table across the restaurant, he saw that she was not the solitary widow they expected. Capote was not only surprised to see her in this particular location, but astonished to see her in the company of a man, which was a cause for raised eyebrows, considering that she had entered widowhood by her own hand not so very long ago. But Anne Woodward did not seem rattled by the patrons, staring with obvious disdain as she exchanged languorous looks with her companion. Truman recognized the man she was with, Klaus von Bülow. A noted womanizer, the tall and handsome von Bülow had committed himself to the effort of charming a long list of social contacts and prided himself on his cultivation of illustrious connections, much as Anne herself had done during her early years in New York. Anne found in Von Bülow an amusing companion, younger than herself, a man with a past as colorful as her own, if not more so. The rumors surrounding him were dark, that he was a necrophile, that he had killed his mother and stashed her body on ice, that somehow he was still embroiled in espionage, that as a youth he had attended Hermann Goring's wedding. Von Bülow could rebut most of the gossip, 
if he ever found himself in the mood to explain, which was rare. Most of the time, he shrugged away the stories with a smirk, which made him even more beguiling to many. Truman Capote had, of course, heard all about Billy Woodward's murder when it happened back on Long Island. On November 15, 1955, not two weeks after Billy's death, Truman had written to his friend, the photographer Cecil Beaton, that Ann Woodward continues to occupy the front pages. But those who discuss it have had to move to Leglon since Mr. Soule closed the pavilion. Leglon has upped its prices. But Capote most often frequented Henri Soule's restaurant La Cote Basque, which had opened in the late 1950s and was located just across the street from the St. Regis Hotel in New York City. There, Truman's eyes often widened in mischief and delight when he and his friends told the most cutting jokes and dished the other diners, including Anne Woodward, who was not only a patron but also lately a topic of discussion. Truman Capote found Anne Woodward interesting, indecorous perhaps, certainly audacious for showing herself in public so soon after being accused of killing her husband and with a man who appeared to be her lover. He continued to stare, but at a certain point he was compelled to get up from his table and walk toward Anne Woodward. He must have also had a suspicion that the encounter, however short, would annoy her, if not downright distress her, which likely increased his delight at his own mischief. As he arrived at the table, Anne immediately got up from her chair, angry that she should have been disturbed during her meal. A short conversation followed, during which apparently Anne called Truman, quote-unquote, a little fag. This was not the first time that Truman Capote had been insulted for his sexual orientation, nor would it be the last. But with the insult coming from Anne Woodward, an accused killer, he took more offense to the jab than he usually did. He returned the slur by wagging his finger at her and calling her Mrs. Bang Bang, a moniker that would stick to her for the rest of her days. After leaving San Moritz, he would repeat the story of how he had met the notorious Anne Woodward whenever the opportunity presented itself, embellishing his tale and relishing each detail. It is Klaus von Bülow here with Anne Woodward when this night goes down. Just a little bit here more from Rosemary Montillo. Anne Woodward eventually came to learn that Truman was constantly talking about her. She grew to despise the man she referred to as a little toad, but she should have also known he was dangerous. He once confessed, I'm about as tall as a shotgun and just as nasty. He was especially keen to hurt those who hurt him. An insult to his sexuality would sharpen his wit. In later years, Truman's friend, Lee Radziwill, echoed Ann Woodward's words when Truman Capote was in a spat with novelist rival Gore Vidal. What does it matter, Radziwill told the reporter Liz Smith. They are just a couple of fags. When Truman learned of that conversation and was asked about it during a televised interview, 
He smiled sardonically and said, I'll tell you something about fags, especially southern fags. We is mean. A southern fag is meaner than the meanest rattler. We just can't keep our mouths shut. In the years that followed their encounter in the restaurant in San Moritz, the lives of Ann Woodward and Truman Capote would occasionally converge. Anne would drift a wan figure on the outskirts of the social world that had once admitted her, however reluctantly. Truman, a literary bad boy, who built on his early success and went on to write what he called the nonfiction novel In Cold Blood, became more and more of an ornamental fixture, gadfly, commentator, walker, and chronicler of the New York social world that centered on Lakote Basque and shunned Anne. Though one was the striking socialite whose life had gone wrong with the killing of her husband, and the other was a small-town southern homosexual of literary brilliance, the two were not that different. Both had overcome hardscrabble, unsteady, fraught childhoods. Both had cajoled, clawed, and charmed their way into the elite circles they sought to enter. Both were vulnerable and mean. Both were familiar with violence. And the violence that caused the death of Billy Woodward would, as recounted by Truman Capote in 1975, incite fresh violence that would ultimately destroy them both. What began with insults in San Moritz would end in death for one and ignominy for the other. Investigators, that is not the only place that Truman Capote is going to show up in this tale, but I wanted to connect that spider web of Klaus von Bülow into our overall investigation while I could. Deceives the eye. Trompele, Klaus von Bülow hanging out with Ann Woodward, that particular night of legend that's going to come back to haunt everyone in the future. But even that is not the end of our story of Klaus von Bülow today. He is one shady cat. It's time for one final break here before we come back and conclude our story today. Back in just a moment. Goodness, we're still in Dominic Dunn's introduction. Let's go ahead and get through the end of that in this last section. Dunn will continue writing from Fatal Charm. In the early 60s, when he was 33 years old, von Bülow was hired as an administrative assistant to the legendary oil tycoon J. Paul Getty, who had recently moved his headquarters of the Los Angeles-based company to London. There has been much speculation as to exactly what von Bülow's importance was in the Getty empire, whether he was an errand boy or a figure of consequence. Getty hated to fly, so von Bülow frequently represented him at meetings and reported back to him. A woman friend of Getty's told me that Von Bülow arranged parties in his apartment at which the old man could meet girls. What is certain is that his income from working for one of the richest men in the world was less than $20,000 a year. Von Bülow speaks of Mr. Getty with enormous affection and says that one of the major mistakes of his life was leaving England and that job. Klaus von Bülow will leave that job in 1968, two years after marrying Sonny, but will always remain close with his benefactor and overlord, J. Paul Getty. Dominic Dunn continues writing to 
sort of sum up only his introduction. Margaret, Duchess of Argyle, was a great friend of Paul Getty's and often served as hostess at his parties. She remembers one occasion when she returned to London from Getty's estate in Surrey with Von Bulow, whom she did not know well at the time. She was then involved in one of the most scandalous divorces in English history. Von Bulow asked her if she knew that her husband had taken a room at the Ritz in London that connected with the room of a certain Mrs. So-and-so. She did not know. But you can imagine it was very important information for me to have at that time, said the Duchess, and Mr. Von Bulow didn't even know the Duke. Oh, Margaret of Argyle, her story is coming into our investigation as well. So many spider webs in this one. Let's wrap up here today's episode and get Sonny and Klaus together. They do find each other in the mid-1960s and find something to like in each other. I want to interject one more bit here from Dominic Dunn's reporting as it concerns Sonny's stepfather, Russell Aiken, now long married to Annie Laurie. He has, Russell Aiken does, has some things to say about Klaus von Bülow, and isn't this telling? Dominic Dunn writes, Russell Aiken's dislike of his stepson-in-law is ferocious, and it predates the two charges of attempted murder by insulin injection. Standing on the terrace of Champs Soleil, the Bellevue Avenue estate he inherited from his late wife, which rivals, perhaps even surpasses, Clarendon Court and Splinter, Mr. Aitken recalled for me the first time he and his wife ever met Klaus von Bülow. It was in 1966 in London, in the lounge of Claridge's Hotel, when von Bülow was a suitor for Sonny, who had just divorced Prince Alfie von Ausberg. Von Bülow arrived for the meeting with Sonny's parents with his head covered in bandages, explaining that he had been in an automobile accident. Later, Mr. and Mrs. Aitken heard from Sonny that the truth was rather different. His head was bandaged because he had just had his first hair transplant operation. Behind Russell Aitken, on the rolling lawns of the French Manor House, a new croquet court was under construction, which promises to be the handsomest croquet court on the eastern seaboard. A respected sculptor, he had had one of his own artworks installed on a wall overlooking the new court. Mr. Aitken interrupted his tour to continue our conversation about his stepson-in-law. He is an extremely dangerous man, he said, because he's a Cambridge-educated con man with legal training. He is totally amoral, greedy as a wolverine, cold-blooded as a snake. And I apologize to the snake. May I quote you in saying that, Mr. Aitken, Dominic asks. Oh, yes, indeed, he replied. And I apologize to the snake. That is some hot truth right there. Dunn will continue. In 1966, Von Bülow married the American princess Martha Sonny Crawford von Ausberg, 13 months after her divorce from her first husband, Prince Alfie von Ausberg, on whom she had settled a million dollars and two houses. Tired of living in Austria, tired of her husband's philandering, 
tired of big game hunting in Africa, Sunny wanted to bring up her two children from that marriage, Princess Annie Lori von Ausberg and Prince Alexander von Ausberg, age seven and six, in the United States. Fifteen years later, those same two children would charge their stepfather with attempting to murder her. The couple settled in New York in Sonny's apartment at 960 Fifth Avenue, the same apartment where Von Bulow and Mrs. Reynolds reside. A year later, their only child, Cosima, was born. Prince Otto von Bismarck, J. Paul Getty, the Marchioness of Londonderry, and Isabel Glover were her godparents. Filling out the details a little bit here, the wedding of Klaus and Sonny occurs June the 6th, 1966. It is held at the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City, and Kosama, their daughter, was born in the following year, 1967. Those names above Kosama's grandparents translated Viscount Lambden, Isabel Glover, Annabelle Burley, who's now Lady Goldsmith, Klaus and Sonny are playing in high-flying circles, and the future looks bright for our newlyweds. They will settle into that posh apartment at 965th Avenue. Sonny is soon going to buy a home in Newport, Rhode Island. One of Bellevue Avenue's grandest homes, that home is Clarendon Court. Sonny will make this purchase as her mother, Annie Laurie, and stepfather, Russell Aiken, have just bought Champs-Soleil, right down the road, almost next door to Clarendon Court in Newport. And things here from 1966, at least for a few years, go okay. But remember, as Russell Aiken said best, Klaus von Bülow is a snake and my apologies to the snake. Trompelet, Klaus deceives the eye. When we come back next week, we will be talking about the marriage of Klaus and Sonny, and its breakdown, and ultimately, the crimes of Klaus von Bülow that take place in Clarendon Court in the Christmases of 1979 and 1980, respectively. Be sure to check back on Patreon last week for our Not Done Yet episode bonus about Clarendon Court. We covered that home and all of its history. Patreon is where you can go to show a little support to the podcast and get your early ad-free episodes along with not-done-yet bonuses in return. Again, many, many thanks for tuning in today, for being awesome. Until we meet again on our next Dunday, stay curious and keep on investigating.
Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.